0: You are listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. We invite you to join us on the exciting journey of following Jesus and bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. This episode was recorded at the Vineyard Nordic summer camp. Good morning to you. It is, it is a great delight, a great delight to be back among friends. As I say, it was literally ten years ago, pretty much to the day that we were last here at the camp. I think this building had just—I think it it had just been been, this particular hall had just been built. So uh, uh, thank you so much for having us back. Um, We have wondered in the intervening ten years what we did wrong not to be invited back. but, (laughs) But Fleming assures me I didn't do anything too wrong. And um, what we would like to do is uh, talk in the sessions that the two of us are doing. We'd like to talk about what a wonderful church looks like, or what a wonderful family of churches looks like, which is what you are here in the Nordic. And... um, I don't want to flatter you or, indeed, insult you, but, I mean, the way that you have followed the Lord through thick and thin, I mean, and look at the fruit of it and see what God has done over, over these years. It's just remarkable, and the rest of us in the vineyard around the world have watched and have been thrilled and excited to see all that God is doing and the way that you're growing and you're developing leaders and you're spreading the good news of Jesus and you're planting churches and hordes of young people you've accumulated. It's just wonderful. And we're we're thrilled and we're delighted to be here and hope we can be of some use. Um so I'm going to talk this morning, and there should be... There we go. What a wonderful church looks like. Click. We operate at a level of... There we are. If we... In a minute, you'll get the second slide, hopefully. If I were a betting man, I would put a lot of money on it. There we go. And what I want to talk about this morning is that the things that we hold so so precious in the vineyard, the things we we treasure are, among other things, the fact that one of the things a wonderful church looks like is that it's biblical. This book is our guide and our rule, our, our gold standard our plumb line however you want to describe it and always has been and god willing always will and what that means and and you may have um if you've hung around the vineyard at all you'll have sometimes have heard these phrases and i know that i apologize they are in english but i'm sure there's a norwegian or a Finnish equivalent, you may have heard the phrase about the kingdom, the now and the not yet. It's a phrase, it's sort of shorthand that we use to describe the particular way in which the Bible portrays and spells out for us the rule and the reign of Jesus, King Jesus and the, the way in which he has worked, and he is working, and he will work. And we talk about the now and the not yet, and the, the tension between, we don't have it all now, but we have some of it now, and some lies ahead, and the tension between the two, both the now and the not yet. And if you've hung around the vineyard for more than 20 minutes, you'll have heard us talk about this. It's a, it's a core part of our understanding of the scriptures the rule and reign of Jesus. And then the s- second thing, if you unpack this idea of the vineyard being biblical, is that uh, it's th- driven by the, the gospel, and the good news. And the phrase again, I think it was Wim- John Wimber actually who coined it. And w- uh, can I apologize in advance, if you hear us from time to time quoting John Wimber, let me explain to those of you who may not be so familiar. He was the man uh, that God used to start what we now call The Vineyard. Uh, he was born and raised and lived in the United States. And uh, he was a remarkable a remarkable man. He died, what, 20 how many years ago? How many? 22 years ago. So the fact that he's dead, but, that has an impact, <laughs> by which I mean when we refer to him it's not that there is a sort of hagiography or we've got stuck in the past of 22 years ago. I don't mean that at all, but he was the person that God used. And among other things, he had an, an ability to, f- to explain things simply and clearly in ways that were memorable. And he used to talk about the main and the plain. And by that he meant that And part of being men and women of this book was that the things in this book that down through the centuries, down through the millennia of Christian history, the, the church of every description, every part has always been quite clear that there were certain things that were, as it were, front and center. There were certain things that are crystal clear. Now, there are some things that aren't. I mean, there are some things that Christians have discussed and debated and sometimes fought over. I and mean, that's fine. And people have their opinions and they work on trying to understand it more. But in contrast to that, there are a whole lot of things that are very clear, crystal clear, the main and the plain. And one of those is, of course, the good news of Jesus. And as a vineyard family, this lies right at the heart, right at the center, in the very roots of who we are and what we're about. And that's what I want to focus on for the time we have. So if you have a Bible within reach or some sort of digital device, That has the Bible on it. Would you like to turn to Acts chapter 17? I want to talk about our calling to preach the gospel. And, of course, in the way we understand the scriptures, we see preaching the gospel and planting churches as as really going uh, uh, entirely integrated. And and being deeply connected with one another. That having led people to preaching the gospel, introduce people to Jesus, having done that, of course, we need to help them to get established in their faith and grow in their faith. And the ideal factory for the perfect, God-given, God-invented factory for making disciples is what? Is the church? There's nowhere else on the planet that you can make disciples. It's in the church. So, if you like to turn to Acts chapter 17, um, here is, and there are a number, there are a number of places I could have plucked out a narrative, but I've chosen Paul's visit to. Athens, Um, Paul was visiting there, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him, and like like many of us who find themselves in Athens with time on their hands, what do you do? You go sightseeing. And that's exactly, Paul grabbed his iPhone with his camera and started, you know, Visiting the sites, the famous sites of Athens. And then a little bit later, he found himself uh, speaking to some of... You, you need to remember that Athens was the center of the then known world civilization. And Athens was the place where you know, com- combined university and... Um, governmental centre. It was where the brightest, the best and the brightest of the known world lived, in the acad- academic world and in the political world and in every other world, the artistic world. Anyhow, Paul found himself, and that's where we'll pick up the story, verse 22 of Acts chapter 17, speaking, addressing these people in the thing called the Areopagus, which was a meeting place. Men of Athens, verse 22, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he's sort of reporting back on his sightseeing trip. But as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, I should have said that, that Athens, the city, was full, fuller, forest of um, idols it was said that if you went to visit Athens, you were more likely to bump into a god, with a small g, than you were to a human being. They were just everywhere. Do you see? So, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, he said, I, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. <laughs> with breathtaking boldness he says now what you worship as something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you (laughs) just remember who he's addressing what you I'm now going to explain to you what you don't know and it's such a pleasure to do so is the implication The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. One of the greatest throwaway lines in history. Life and breath and everything else. (laughs) From one man, he made every nation of men and women that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own prophets has said, we are his offspring. One, well, sorry, one of your own poets has said. <coughs> Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, which of course he'd seen in his sightseeing, an image, that is an image made by man's design and skill. No, no. In the past, he goes on, you are kind, thank you. Um, Verse 30. In the past, he goes on, God overlooked such ignorance. I mean, just breathtaking. To the brightest of the bright. He said, you've actually... You're ignorant. But I tell you what. God's prepared to overlook that ignorance. (laughs) But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. God is focused and fixated on justice, righteousness, and he is often the future, yes, but he set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Not with menace, not with vindictiveness, no, 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 with justice. with the man he has appointed, by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising that man from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear more on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. <clears throat> and... and, and as is obvious and will have been pointed out to you in the past Paul uses his sightseeing tour and particularly he's stumbling across this um, temple this monument just inscribed to the unknown God He, he uses that as his launch pad and a point: the, the, the thing about the Athenians was they were so terrified of the gods that they would worship ev- anything and everything just to make sure they didn't accidentally irritate or anger one of them. Do you see? Which would then have dire consequences for them. And just as a sort of insurance policy, they had one. They thought they had identified them all, but they, they, they just designated one to the unknown god in case they'd missed a, a trick. Do you see? In case there was a gap. So it was a sort of god of the gaps. In case we've missed one, well, let's worship him and we'll be fine. Do you see? So that was the that was the background. And so he launches into this speech, this sermon, this lecture. And during the course of it, he says three spectacular things. Stunning things, majestic things about God, the God we worship. And these things go to the very heart, the very life, the very meaning. They make sense of the world in a way that nothing else does. And they lie right at the heart, the core of who we are as a global vineyard family. They could not be more important. This is why we do what we do. This because this stuff has gripped us, got hold of us, and because we believe it to true. It's right at the heart of who we are. And these three things are: number one, God's great creation. It'll come up on there, verses twenty-four and twenty-five. His whole emphasis at first is upon the, the, God who created us, God the creator, verse 24, the God who made us, verse 26, the maker of all nations, number, v- verse 29, the father of all mankind, excuse me, <clears throat> verse 24, the God who made the world and everything is in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth. You see the, the verb there, God made. That's the emphasis. You see it again in verse uh, 26. From one man, he made every nation. This is the idea that God created, God made. So in other words, he's saying to them, the God I'm talking about is the God who has made the world for us to live in. But he said, the, tr- the trouble is we spin it around and we somehow think that we need to make temples for him to live in. Do you see? So the Athenians have got it upside down. He said, in effect, he says, you Athenians are, are basing this on the assumption that your gods need board and lodging. They need an air, B and B, all the equivalent that <laughs> they can't get along. These gods of yours can't get along without you. You've got to give them housing. Paul turns around and says, "No, no, 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 you've got it quite wrong. It's not God who needs a dwelling place made by you. No, no, it's the exactly the other way around. It's you who live in a dwelling place made by God. That's what he's saying. This whole world, God made as a dwelling place for you. And he's not served. This is the. I love it in verse 25. I mean, This. the boldness of. The, the, this, this is just spectacular. God who made the. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Poor little God needs some help. No, no, no. He himself gives all men and women life and breath. Everything else. It all comes from God. He gives us the next breath. Hold your breath for a second. A minute. A moment. The very fact you've just taken your next breath is only because he gave it to you. If he didn't give it to you, this would be a large funeral service. And we'd be in the presence of the Lord. Sooner than expected, maybe. This is extraordinary. We're utterly dependent upon God. The whole, that's the way God has made the whole thing. Now, our culture, your culture in this part of Europe, our culture and ours, it, it, it does not get this. But that doesn't change it. But we need to get it, and we need to remind ourselves that we've got, got it. Not to be complacent, of course but to remind ourselves of these great majestic truths that lie at the heart of the business we're in. So he goes on in verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image. You know, basically what he's saying is you take all that's most brilliant in mankind and Athens sort of encapsulated it. All the marvels of art and architecture and philosophy and imagination at its very grace, intellectual ability at its most profound, some of the finest buildings in the then known world, sculpture, architecture, all their glittering brilliance had been harnessed... And what was the best, the best they could come up with, with all that brilliance? An image. The net result of the cleverest people in the world seeking to make sense of life and the universe, the net result was what? Idolatry. That's the best they could come up with an image, something to try and worship. And he holds it up to ridicule. He says, is that all? Is that the best you can do? (laughs) Honestly? Now, of course, in our modern world, we do nothing so unsophisticated as to have all these little idols. And temples, oh no, 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 we don't do that. But we are nevertheless beset by idolatry. And idolatry stalks our lands in different ways. Because you see, by an idol, the Bible means anything, anything that displaces God from the throne. Anything that moves God off the throne, by definition, is idolatry. If you ever wonder what is your idol, then you simply ask yourself the question, what if, if everything in my life gradually, one after another, were taken away? Just one thing after another. Everything that we hold precious, one by one, is removed. What is the very last thing that you and I would hand over? Your car, your job, your salary, your house, your wealth, your food, your family, your reputation, on and on and on and on. What's the very last thing you'd hand over? That, by definition, is the thing you worship. That's what the Bible means by it. And Paul's one great point is God is our creator and sustainer, and we cannot do without him. And the one great sin, the one great offense, the one great mistake, according to the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the New Testament, is not adultery, or cruelty, or lying, or or bad as those things are. No, no, it's, I want to be independent of God. I can do it myself. I can run this thing myself. (laughs) The Lord says, the Bible says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So... God's great creation. Don't you love it? Doesn't it give life? Second thing, God's great mercy. God's great mercy. Look at verse 30. In the, in the past, you know, history has moved to a point, and Paul is saying, in the past, God has overlooked that. Because of what he sent it. He doesn't unpack it here, but he does elsewhere. Because of what God has done in Jesus, sending his son, who died for us, and was risen for us. Because of all that, God is able to overlook the past. God is kind. God is mercy. merciful. God is loving. He had absolutely no reason, no, no, no need, no obligation to overlook my ignorance, but he has. And the wonderful news we have to say to people is, and he can do exactly the same for you. Exactly the same for you. There's nothing special about us. There's something very special about him. And he can do it for you. Years ago, I remember an old old pastor, who's now in his mid-90s, he's saying, I always remember, he said, he said, when, he said, when I get to heaven and I meet the Lord face to face, he said, I can well imagine my instinct as I meet the Lord will be to blurt out something like, oh Lord, it's lovely to see you at last, but but, but, oh, I'm so sorry for that and that and all my sins, that and that and that. And he said, but I know what will happen. Jesus will look me in the eye and he'll just say, what sins? What sins? What, What are you talking about? God overlooks because he has forgiven. His great mercy. God's great creation. The second stupendous truth, God's great mercy, and I haven't dwelt in it because I don't have time. But you can dig it. And the third thing I want you to see is God's great authority. God's great authority. God has stamped his authority on this world and on our lives, and it's the most wonderful thing. Look in verse uh, thirteen and thirty-one. In the past, God overlooks such ignorance, but now He says, "Okay, the past. Now let's move to the present. Never mind the future. We'll come to that in a minute. Let's talk about now. Now." He commands. It's a majestic sentence, isn't it? God commands. He doesn't have to shout and shriek and stamp. Just because of who he is, he commands. I love it. You see, sovereignty has the right to make demands of everybody. If you're the King of Kings, if you made all this anyhow, you have the perfect right—if I put it like this—you have the perfect right to make demands. His rule and reign, and that of course interlocks with what I was talking about earlier. This whole subject of the rule and reign of Jesus and the kingdom, the magnificent reign of God. And he goes on, and he looks into the future, and look at verse beginning of verse 31, he says he has set a day when he will judge the world. You know, some, of, some people think, don't they, that history is just going sort of round and round and round. Some of the Eastern faiths, religions, tend to go in that direction. Christianity has never done that. Christianity has always gone. The Judeo-Christian tradition is always that it's going in a straight line from A to B. So somewhere in the future, there will be a point when God, he he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. It's as if God has set up a court. Think The Hague. Think the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., or whatever the equivalent is in your nation. The highest court in the land. The highest court in the universe. God has already set up. And there'll be a day of of accounting where every wrong will be righted. So it went all, C.S. Lewis used to say, it's not just a criminal court, it's also a civil court where injustices. So you think of all the things that have ever been done or said to you that were wrong. Just plain wrong. In your life, I mean, I mean, it becomes mind-boggling because then you spread the, the poor and the impoverished, the children. You were talking about it last night, I gather, the children who should be alive on this planet today, but aren't, because somebody chose to kill them. The injustice of that. One day, God will put them right. Spectacular. This is the God we worship, the God of justice, fairness. He will judge the world. Everyone, everyone will face the just justice of God in given account. Famously, Anne of Austria, you know, who got into a bit of a pickle with Cardinal Richelieu. Do you remember? I you know, think three musketeers, okay? God says to this unjust cardinal, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord cardinal, but at the end he pays. There is justice built into the universe that God has made. And not only has God appointed a day, he's also appointed a man. But what do, what do people do? What do people do with authority? What do people do with God's authority? They dispute it, don't they? They question it. That's, this is too big a claim for Jesus to make. What, what right has he? How often do you hear that? What right has he to make that decision? What right has he to make this claim of God's authority? And lest the Athenians think that this is just a matter of fantasy, conjured up in the deepest recesses of Paul's twisted mind, he says, very well, let me show you that what I'm saying is not the product of a bigot or a fantasist. He has set a day and he will judge He has given proof of this to all men and women by raising him from the dead. See, God gives to everybody, to you, to me, an assurance, a proof, a certainty, the, the solid ground on which to base all of this. And what is that proof? It is raising Jesus, from the dead. It's the only way we can know that this isn't a fantasy. It's just us dreaming up some splendid and rather esoteric and maybe attractive ideas. We're just as deluded as everybody else. You know, elsewhere, when First Corinthians, do you remember, Paul writes to them and he says, if Christ hasn't been raised... Our faith is futile. It's a complete waste of time. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> but if he has, it changes everything. See, so it all hinges on this man that he has appointed Jesus. Let me, can I read you a bit of N.T. Wright, who's an English uh, um, writer and theologian? He, he writes of this text, he says, The, the Creator God will do this through a particular man he's appointed for the task. In other words, Jesus himself. How do we know that Jesus is the coming judge? Because, Paul says, God has raised him from the dead. It is the, listen to this. It is the resurrection of Jesus which explains why Jesus is the coming judge. It isn't anything so trivial as that the resurrection demonstrates Jesus' divinity or even Jesus' um, superiority as a human being, both of which are true. And therefore, that these two things qualify him for a particularly tricky task. No, no. No. It is that with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. From the resurrection of Jesus, it's all different. In other words, his being raised from the dead is the start, the foundation, the beginning of the great setting right, which God will do for the whole cosmos at the end. The risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe, says N.T. Wright, that has already been set right. Jesus is therefore the one through whom everything else will be set right. Because it's of a new order. It's totally different from anything that's gone before. (laughs) Don't you think it's stunning? This is what we've got to say. This is what the vineyard has to say around the globe. This is the good news that God has put into our hands And we read in this book. These are our foundations. This is the stuff that it's not just nostalgia going back to, you know, an overweight Californian 30 years ago who wore the the most awful clothes, you know, a thing called a Hawaiian shirt when he was on the stage, called Reeboks. No, 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 this is... This has nothing to do with him. This is all about the God, the majestic, stunning creator of the universe, God's great creation, God's great mercy, God's great authority. He has the right to put his stamp on our lives. And our response, as Paul points out here, is to fall flat on our faces and say, oh God, yes, 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 in any way we can, all of us, as many as we can possibly (laughs) reveal, show, share this with. That's what we're in business for in the Vineyard. This is what we stand for. You have been listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. For more information, please visit the Vineyard Nordic's website, vineyardnordic.org.